Hello, movie lovers. Welcome back to the 1980s movie graveyard. We're back with another show, doing another commentary, of course. Uh, that's pretty much all we do, commentaries, but not straight-up commentaries, more like conversations while we watch the movies. And uh, I have to say, this is uh, kind of our first guest here. Not that, it, you know, not that you know, me and Corey G. own the 1980s movie's graveyard, but... Uh, but, uh, you know, we're, we're all participants in the nostalgia love because we're all getting old. We're all dying. And thankfully, we have somebody else to kind of come into the graveyard tonight and reminisce while we watch a film. I want to introduce everybody in case uh, you, you don't know us from our other shows or whatever. I want to introduce my good buddy, Trevor, from If It Please We Can Kill It podcast and also from Days of Future podcast. Trev 3K, what's going on, man? Hey, what's going on, Goat? Thanks for having me on the graveyard, and uh, thanks. This is the first podcast I've ever been on that started off with you being like, well, we're all dying. You know? yeah. <laughs> thanks for reminding me of that. That's how I want to we, we are. I don't know about you, but I'm not getting any younger. <laughs> I think my back hurts a little more every week. Yeah, I guess I might as well start banking these podcasts now, because we'll all be dead soon. So. Yeah, that's kind of the theory of it. <laughs> this, is our, this is our legacy, right? we got to leave something behind for the future generations. Yeah. I gotta have some kids uh, soon so I can like hand them a hard drive of podcasts that we banked for like thirty years. <laughs> be like, like play, upload these every week while yeah. I'm dead. We'll be like uh, podcast Tupac's. Yeah, exactly. That'd be kind of awesome to just live as a hologram. <laughs> no, yeah, but but we're here uh, tonight. We're actually doing uh, a movie that uh that uh trevor suggested the burbs starring tom hanks directed by joe dante and i'm glad he suggested this because it's a little bit different than uh some of the movies we've uh covered so far uh we we've covered let's see we covered kind of sci-fi action we've covered horror we covered actually some straight-up comedy but i don't think i think me and Corey had covered any films that were really just a um a real blender of uh of genres the way this film is it's, it's yeah really... this movie really sneaks in on the 80s too because it's 89 but um right i mean one of the main reasons i picked it is obviously there's some other joe dante movies that would be the obvious choices for the 80s mm-hmm. but this is one that i feel like it's both underappreciated and very i mean it's got a big cult following i know but it's still somewhat you know underseen and right. undervalued so that's kind of why i wanted to highlight it a little more and i always to this day I'm not. I'm. This is no joke. I'm dead serious. This is my favorite Tom Hanks movie, even today. After oh, he's great in it. After everything that's followed, I mean, yeah, I love him. I love his drama stuff, and you know, I'm glad he became a big deal after this. But this is I, my go-to Tom Hanks movie is The Burbs. Man, I grew up on this movie. I watched it on cable roughly 200 times or something growing up. So well, I was glad to, glad to suggest this one, and glad uh, we're, we're we're watching this tonight. Yeah, it was it was a treat to rewatch, and I've been meaning to uh, rewatch it because because I've had a Blu-ray copy that I got maybe about six months ago. And it was good just to have an excuse to uh, you know, like I don't know about you, but uh, I'm sure you as well. Like you have a movie backlog, and it's it's hard to sometimes schedule in old favorites like this. Mm-hmm. So we're gonna go ahead and get the movie rolling here. Welcome to the exciting world of the movies. Smoking is not permitted in this auditorium. It's the law. Certificates are available at the box office. Thanks for helping us keep the theater clean. As you exit the auditorium, please deposit litter in trash receptacles in the lobby. 
please be considerate and don't talk during the show. Uh, for your singing instructions, you can follow at home along with the DVD uh, as of we're recording this right now in um, uh, 2015. It is streaming on Netflix streaming, but obviously that changes all the time, so it might not be there in the future. But you can stream it on there if you want to follow along. If not, just listen to us talk. If you're just a Burbs fan, you tune in. Joe Dante fan, Tom Hanks fan, listen along. We're going to have some fun with this. Rick uh, Dukeman fan. Yeah, Rick, the late, great Rick Dukeman. Um yeah, so I have the movie paused at the nine-second mark uh, on the streaming version. It uh, is a Universal and MCA company logo is up. All right, let me get to that here. And all right, I am also on that nine-second mark. Okay, so I'm going to say one, two, three, go. And uh, when 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 I say go, <clears throat> we'll all hit our play buttons and we'll get it rolling. All right, everybody, one, two, three, go. I have to say, this is the first time ever. I've probably done 30, 40 DVD movie commentaries, whatever. This is the first time I've ever done one off streaming. And it's actually a pleasure because there's no lag when I hit play. It actually does play with my Blu-ray player. I kind of I kind of have to cheat and hit the button early and <laughs> wait for the disc to keep spinning. It's interesting, too, because I guess you're watching like a high-def version, and I'm watching standard def. So we're getting right. different experiences here. But That's right. You'll have to let me know if there's anything really impressive going on in the corners that I'm missing. Or in the <laughs> Uh, we'll do. Yeah, we start out and already kind of Joe Dante's genius, I think, is coming out here with the, you know, the, everybody knows the Universal logo is that planet spinning. Well, the planet kind of, you know, the, the camera, the virtual cam, I guess you could say, kind of zooms in and, and goes to the Universal planet and keeps zooming in. And, you know, eventually you get to this aerial shot of a uh, of a neighborhood here. And I have to say, like, I, I maybe, I don't, I'm not sure, maybe the planet part was, because it was a little crude looking, it, maybe it was hand-drawn, maybe it was early CGI, but, but you know, this being before the CGI era, that was actually a pretty impressive uh, intro, I thought. Yeah. Yeah, right off the bat here, I, I love this, and um, this street here has been in so many movies, the houses have been rebuilt, redone. But this is the uh, street at Universal Studios. I actually went there once on a tour and saw it. Yeah, me too. Uh, actually, I've been to Universal Studios a couple times, and I remember this being like a part of the tour. And I'm being like, there's the street from the Burbs. And I just remember being blown away by that because, like I said, I love this movie. And I was like, man, I just want to live on that street. <laughs> I know. I really, like, legitimately, like, this is still a movie to this day. Because, I, I mean, I live in the suburbs. and But I always watch this movie and still like think, like, man, I wish my neighborhood was this interesting. And I wish I had neighbors this, you know, uh, Tight. A, yeah, you know, just like these kind of neighbors that, because really, I, I live in the suburbs, but I, my neighborhood, like the neighbors, aren't all really tight with each other, and right. everyone kind of keeps themselves a little bit, you know. But yeah, I kind of grew up in, uh, I guess, the rural suburbs where you know the houses are close together, but you were never tight with your neighbors, you know. Like you'd be tight with the other kids that you went to school with, but it wasn't like everybody just knew everybody, you know. It wasn't like everybody's dads were just hanging out, just hanging out. I would gladly accept a serial killer on my block if it also meant awesome neighbors in the other houses. <laughs> yeah, that is true. And, like, yeah, it's kind of funny, um, just, just uh, on a personal note, I've been looking at houses lately to uh, rent uh, in this area. Um, can't, unfortunately, I can't afford to buy a house, but to rent a house, I've been looking and just looking at houses and... 
seeing floor plans and just all kinds of shit. Like, I'm, like I'm totally with you, and I wish I could live in a place that looked like this because I don't know. Houses now are so small and boring and lame. Mm-hmm. Is that the one you want to live in? That one right there. Is <laughs> yeah. I want to live in the Freddy Krueger looking house right there. <laughs> Which uh, apparently, uh, I guess parts of that house because this street I was reading all about it. And forgive me for not having it up. I'll look it up and get the name for you guys. But um, it was actually uh, it, it, there's actually a, a name for it. Um, most recently, you guys probably know this street from um, as Wisteria Lane from uh, Desperate Housewives. Mm. But uh, the street actually has a uh, a real name to it, and uh, some of these houses are still there. Some are like half been rebuilt. Some of them are real houses that you can go into. Uh, like when I was on the tour, you could kind of see into them. Like there's no furniture, but some of them are actually just uh, facades. It's just kind of like the shell of a house. You know what I mean? But they're they're constantly um, they're constantly like rebuilding and actually moving houses around. Because they, they actually had to move the original, I think, leave it to Beaver House while they were uh, doing this. Okay, Colonial Street is what it's called. And uh, we're, we're kind of still just setting up. It's kind of crazy. Uh, Joe Dante, they, they kind of pushed him to have some scenes so the film wouldn't seem as, I guess, claustrophobic scenes off the, the street here. And he actually turned them down because he, he, I don't know, he, he said it, it felt, you know, like it violated the spirit of the piece or whatever. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, I don't know how, you know, when you're younger, you don't pay attention to that kind of stuff as much, but I don't know how many times it took me watching this movie before I realized it never leaves this little cul-de-sac. Like yeah, every, like, it's, know, the entire movie is here, yeah. Like, you would think there would at least be, like, a, some scene where they would, like, go to, like, a Seven Eleven or something real quick, but nah, mm-hmm. really. Yeah, some, some movies and actually TV shows as well, um, this street has been in, uh, Bedtime for Bonzo, I mean, this street goes back to, like, the 1940s, uh, Beethoven, uh, I'm guessing that was the dog movie. Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. That's a Dolly Parton. Um, Burt Reynolds movie. It says Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I'm not sure if that means the TV show or the movie. No, I'm guessing that's the movie because like, I can kind of think about like where she lived in the movie and I can see that being really? the street. Yeah, The Burbs. Um, it says Casper 1997 prequel. I'm thinking that's like a directed video movie. <laughs> uh, Deep Impact. I guess that's the Astro movie. Uh, the Desperate Hours, which is the Humphrey Bogart version of the film. Obviously, Desperate Housewives. Uh, let's see. Father's Day, the movie with Robin Williams, Billy Crystal. Uh, Ghost of Mr. Chicken, Ghost Whisperer, Gremlins. That actually makes sense. Uh, Gremlins, I, uh, there's parts that look like it. Most of that was shot on the Universal Battle Luck. Uh, Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew. House of the Thousand Corpses, uh, the scene, pretty much the trick-or-treating scenes, you could tell. They shot a lot of that on the Universal Backlot. Even some of the desertish shit. Uh, I could go on and on. Marcus Welby, MD, Matlock. I mean, there hundreds more, literally hundreds more. But yeah, yeah. What, what, I, this is the kind of thing that that struck me about this movie being interesting. We get introduced here to. Uh, um, Oh, I'm blanking on his name. The great actor, Bruce Stern. Bruce Stern. I'm pretty sure this is the first Bruce Stern movie I ever saw. I think so, too. Because when I look back at his catalog from the 80s, like, he was in so so many gritty movies, I probably wouldn't have seen those when I was a young kid, you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, I mean, once I got into Bruce Stern later, then I went back and started, like, rewatching his old 70s stuff and everything. But at this point, I was just like, hey, it's that cool old guy from the Burbs, you know? Yeah. 
what, easy rider I experienced a little later, you know. Exactly. What, what did you think of the decision to give Bruce Stern, like, I wouldn't even call her super hot, but actually a much younger wife here who's supposed to be, like, the hot wife of the neighborhood? What, that, I don't know. Like, I've never, not that it doesn't work or it's bad or anything, but I, even re-watching the film, I just never really got why they did that. <laughs> Well, it's true because they don't do a lot of, they don't take advantage of that joke a lot. Right. But I, I'm not going to complain about having a hot wife running around because she is hot. You yeah. Know, but, but yeah, it's weird. I, you would you'd expect there to be more jokes about why are the two of them together. Yeah. But whatever. I mean, I guess who, it, it works well enough, you know. Yeah, Corey Feldman also plays one of the neighbors. He's a, he's whatever, a teenage kid whose parents are away, and it seems like he's been charged with uh, repainting the house or something he kind of flirts with bruce stern's wife but it's very you know it's he's just kind of like overly comp complimenting and stuff yeah and there's a couple shots of like rick dukeman like checking her out too you know? yeah but it's yeah it's never like they, they never paint her as being like a bad wife or anything she's not like the slutty wife or anything like that mm-hmm. all right let, let's talk about another cast member here um which uh this kid yeah, this kid. <laughs> Clearly, he's he's gone on to do a lot. I heard he's got a big uh, movie come out this Christmas. No, obviously, this is one of the few movies, I guess. And I have to look up her filmography to really see how many she did or didn't movies did or didn't. Do. But it seems like you know Carrie Fisher here, being a major star from Star Wars, you know, kind of I guess maybe kind of like Mark Hamill. She and, and she had her personal problems in the '80s or whatever. But still, I mean. At this time point in time, you can see her like she's still with it. She still looks. I mean, she's still young. Like mm-hmm. I wouldn't even doubt if maybe she's maybe even younger in this movie than I am now. But uh, and I think she's great in this movie. Like I don't know. Like I'm maybe again maybe it's the personal problems. But I kind of wish Carrie Fisher had done more stuff in the eighties. Yeah, it's not a flashy role or anything. But yeah, she's very convinced. She's very believable in the role and likable. Um, yeah, I mean I. I it's weird, too, because I remember when I saw this, I'm sure I was like, oh, Princess Leia. And the only reason I thought it's because that's really all you knew her from at the right. time. You know, you just didn't see her pop up that often. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I guess it's just the Princess Leia thing. But, like, I like I can't, I can't not see Carrie Fisher in a movie and not have at least a little bit of a crush on her. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously she's at a point in her career here where she was willing to take a role in this movie, like, where she's just the wife, you know? It's not right. even like they give her anything that interesting to do. But, uh, I mean, Tom Hanks is on top of his his, his game here, you know. I, I, I know this is, would you say, probably your favorite Tom Hanks movie? Oh, yeah, for sure. Like I said, this is this is my number one Tom Hanks movie. Or we should we should say Tom Hanks 1.0. <laughs> you know what I mean? This is kind of the comedic version of yeah, Tom Hanks. Which know? is still my favorite Tom Hanks. Yeah, same here. I mean, I, I actually think he is awesome as a dramatic actor. But mm-hmm. he, I mean, we'll, we'll kind of point it out as we see it. But, like... He had so many great kind of jerky mannerisms as a comedic actor that you don't see him do anymore, you know? Yeah. And I wish he was not as, um, he's not, like, he hasn't completely turned his back on his side, but I wish he would embrace it a little bit more nowadays and not, you know, be a little more willing to talk about some of these films. Yeah, it, it, it seems like he has a sense of humor as a person, like when you see him on talk shows or something, but in terms of, mm-hmm. like, what roles he'll take, he doesn't, uh, it doesn't seem like he really wants to take a lot of comedic roles. Yeah. Now, I will also say this is definitely my favorite Rick Dukeman movie. Yeah, let's talk about Rick Dukeman a little bit, because, I mean, I know the guy, and I know his face and stuff, but I really only know him from this movie, to be honest with you. Like, do you know a little bit of how he got started or what his first thing was? Well, I feel like he was a stand-up, from what I understand, but right. I, I don't... I mean, obviously, yeah, I mean, this is... If he has an iconic role, it's this one, you know? 
Um, but I like. Let's see. On Wikipedia, he's a Canadian actor, comedian, yeah. and writer. Um, oh, he was on Star Search. That might have been <laughs> something. But... Star Star Search was really big. He uh, finished second. He finished second on Star Search in the comedy category behind Brad Garrett. Wow. Um, but yeah, I mean, I you know, then once I knew him in this, then I would start to then you'd see you would recognize him popping up in small roles other places, you know. Like, yeah, it, it, got it, the, he's in Groundhog Day and he pops up for a moment in Die Hard and you know the last Boy Scout I remember he's in. He's the dad in Scary Movie. Yeah, I do remember Scary Movie, but it is kind of weird that um, and maybe it was you know Joe Dante just wanting to get a fresh face or they just had to spend all their cast money somewhere else but it's kind of interesting that this guy got introduced to us you know great you know i mean i, I would almost say he kind of steals the movie from hanks but hanks is so yeah. damn good you can't really steal it from him mm-hmm. but he i mean he made such a big impression he has so much screen time screen time in this movie that it's interesting this is kind of like you know our introduction to him like as an audience and it was it was his biggest role ever it seemed like yeah, I wonder if this movie had been a, been a bigger hit if he would have, you know, got more roles like this and been the funny sidekick and everything. And right, and that's, not that this movie wasn't a hit. I mean, it would yeah, have cost it, eighteen million and made what forty, 40 something. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah forty nine. Mm-hmm. And you know, who who knows? You know, I, I when I when I see these old movies box office lists, like I, I'm pretty sure they don't count foreign. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But. Um, Another thing, too, is I always remember this as, like, a big summer hit comedy. I was surprised, looking back, it, it came out literally in February 89, so. Yeah. So, I mean, for, for you know, so there are some kind of, especially now, they, uh, movie studios have really capitalized on the um, the Valentine's Day, you know, week or weekend to really open movies. But it didn't, re- you know, the, the January, February used to be a dumping ground. So, you know, back at, you know, 89 for this movie to come out in february and be a hit you know it, mm-hmm. like i almost feel like it maybe could have done an extra 20 30 40 million if it came out during the summer you know when i say i want neighbors like this that's that's all i mean is i want a, yeah. a hot wife on my block that gardens in an outfit like that and also i want to be 17 years old again like cory Feldman in this movie yeah, wearing a mesh shirt over a Batman t-shirt. <laughs> yeah, I, I never said, and, and this is obviously pre-Michael Keaton Batman, mm-hmm. so uh, it's kind of like just the old kind of like basic Batman like symbol. You know, it's not what we buy on t-shirts now. Yeah. You know, it's really, I don't know why it just popped in my head while well, we're talking about Tom Hanks 1.0, as you put it. You know what's a super underrated movie, I, I wonder if you'll agree with me, is Joe vs. the Volcano. You know, I I mean, I like the movie, but I don't know if maybe I was too young when I saw it or whatever. But uh, but I I I'm a really big believer in I'm a really big bachelor party and money pit guy. <laughs> I like those two. I love Dragnet too. Yeah, I, lo- I oh, as a kid, I love Dragnet. Now, see, I if I could call you out here, where you have this problem with them taking Twenty One Jump Street and turning it into comedy movies, right. you don't mind when they do it to Dragnet. <laughs> Come on, that's a little bit different, is it? I don't know. Dragnet. I'm sure there was old people at the time who were like, "I can't believe they're doing this to Dragnet." Tom, who is this punk, Tom Hanks? He should go back to cross dressing, bosom buddies. <laughs> Courtney Gaines making his first appearance. Court, Courtney Gaines, and, and actually, I, got, I, you know, why not? Like, we'll just tell the truth here on this podcast. I actually. After watching this movie the other night, this is no shit. I actually had a nightmare <laughs> that I got attacked by a Courtney Gaines, <laughs> and he cut my legs all up with like a weird like 
spindly knife thing. It was pretty scary. But, um, yeah, Courtney Gaines, and this is going to say, sound weird saying about Courtney Gaines. For people out there who aren't putting the name to the face, Courtney Gaines was kind of like the gangly, uh, red-haired kid. He sometimes would play villains, like in this movie, or like he played Malachi in Children of the Corn. But he was also in like a lot of like teen, I don't know, titty flicks, like hard bodies in the 80s. Just a lot of weird stuff. But if you really think about it for like wherever that time period was, 83 to 89, Courtney Gaines actually had a pretty damn good acting career. Yeah, I mean, he was one of the, he was in Memphis Belle. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, he popped up in a lot of stuff. Colors, I remember. Yeah. Yeah, he was he was really out of place in colors with all the <laughs> vatos and the, and the bloods and the crips and stuff. And, and, and like, I mean, not to be mean to the guy, he, he has because if you see him now, he actually looks much different. He's older. I would, I would, you know, to be fair, like I think he got cast, you know, in these in his teenage years because he was kind of a gangly, awkward, and obviously red hair, you know, bright red hair, like he naturally had, would set you apart, you know. Like he got a lot of roles kind of because of the way he looked, but he actually wasn't a bad young actor. And then I guess maybe in his early to mid twenties, he kind of just disappeared. And you know, lately he'll just pop up in tiny roles, mostly like in Rob Zombie type movies and whatnot. Now here comes one of the first moments that I'd say sticks out as like unmistakably Joe Dante. Mm-hmm. Um, not that I mean, from the most part, you can tell it's a Joe Dante movie already from the the way the music plays and just the overall tone. But I think a great visual joke in a moment here is the the zoom ins on the eyes. Which culminates with the dog having one of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff in here that, you know, and Joe Dante will be the first to admit, you know, even on Gremlins and stuff, like, he he likes to try to, like, recreate, like, a live-action version of, like, cartoons. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, this right here. This is great. And, and I have to say, like, re-watching it, I was kind of surprised how one-note the movie is, how everybody's just so curious about this house and these people. Like, really from the get-go, like, even from the opening frames where Tom Hanks walks out in the middle of the night to see, like, what the racket is next door, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have all the neighbors. <laughs> yeah, even the dog. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's the thing that's great about this movie and why it's interesting is it's like a comedy... But it's like, I wouldn't even call it as much to say it's a spoof, because it's really not. But it's like, it's like a tonal kind of mashup between, like, um, you know, paranoid humor of, like, the 50s. Like, if you look at, like, a lot of science fiction and horror and stuff in the 50s and 60s, you know, the communists and all that shit, there's, like, a lot of, like, Red Scare shit going on. Mm-hmm. And, like, it's kind of like that, and kind of like that episode of The Twilight Zone where... um Remember this episode, Trev, where, like, people just in a suburban neighborhood, the power goes out, and they become, yeah, like... Yeah, the, the, the monsters are due on Maple Street, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and they kind of just become so distrustful and get out of hand and lynching and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And it's just, like, the tiniest thing sets people off. Yeah, this is a super interesting movie, because, I mean, do you, would you even... Would you categorize the Burbs as a horror comedy? I mean, it's kind of... Because it definitely has horror elements in it, but it never dips... You know, most horror comedies end up at some point really dipping into the horror. Yeah, I mean, Burbs never really does that, but then it it is about, you know, serial killers and does get into some kind of gruesome stories later and things like that, but it never betrays the comedy in any way. Exactly. Like, you know, it's kind of funny, too, is this is kind of why I love 80s cinema. I think 80s cinema gets a bad rep for being, quote unquote, too cheesy compared to what people are used to now. But I feel like this, th- like this, would be like seen as like really strange now, like as a horror comedy. But back then, it was just much easier to accept it 
because people, you know, and I know you talk about this a lot, Trev, with, you know, you, you write uh, movie reviews and for Letterboxd and, you know, when stuff you talk about your podcast, but, like, you you really focus in on a lot of films on the tone, and that's what I love about the 80s was you could kind of uh, switch between tones nonstop, and the audience, like, wouldn't, ex- wouldn't, like, have such a huge problem with it the way that it seems like they do now, you know? Mm-hmm. But yeah, I love it, and it's you know, and there's kind of an element of comedy to this whole time that you think you know these guys are just bored living on this you know this boring suburban street, and that they're kind of just all imagining this and making this up to kind of entertain themselves, you know. And, and the movie plays a real fine line the whole time, and you know, it's like it gives you like little hints to make you think it is real and that the the neighbors are killers or weird people yeah. and then also it takes things back and it's like oh no there's a perfect explanation for this or that you know well the nice thing too is i mean obviously we'll get to the end later but i mean it really could have gone either way you know right. you could have you could have changed the ending and had it be the opposite of what it is and it still would have worked yeah like joe you know if the studio wasn't sure or something like joe dante easily could have filmed like two different endings and it probably would have worked well there was an original ending maybe we'll talk about that when we get to there because i don't know if you've seen it no i haven't and actually, I just recently I was listening to a, a podcast with the uh, the Scream. I think it was the Scream Factory guys. Mm-hmm. No, they're talking about this is like a title that gets requested from them a lot, and they said the, they would like to do it, but Universal keeps telling them they want to do their own Blu-ray at some point. Who knows That's if that funny. will ever happen? But I do know that I guess there's a um, over in like Europe. There's a special edition DVD or Blu-ray of this that has a lot of deleted material, whereas the American DVD only has a, an alternate ending. Yeah, that, I know, like, I that's know actually the version I have, and I, I should have yeah. I should have cracked it open for this. I know there's like a deleted subplot that reveals that Tom Hanks's character has actually been fired from work. Yeah, he, it, has, he hasn't told his wife about that, and that's why he's home this whole time. And, and that that makes a lot of sense too. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, just, just to hit people, this is the it's actually a steelbook release from Arrow, our friends at Arrow Video over in the the UK. Um, unfortunately, it's Region B, so I guess you need. A region-free player, yeah. which I have, I just haven't uh, popped this open. But uh, yeah, it's um, you know obviously 1080p Blu-ray. Um, looks like it still just has stereo audio, but it also has an isolated music and effects soundtrack. Has a new audio commentary with the writer Dana Olson. There's a, fe- a feature-length documentary about the making. I should have really watched this. I apologize, friends. <laughs> uh, it also has the original work print cut of the film transfer yeah, talking about yeah. transfer from director joe dante's personal copy which i'm guessing that means a vhs tape and then there there's a video feature comparing the work print and theatrical cuts alternate ending presenting hd for the first time trailer and then a collector's booklet so yeah so if yeah, you really, I really hope i really hope we get that over here at some point yeah like that's what kind of sucks is you know arrow Arrow does put stuff out here in the U.S., but they, but there's certain films that they put out in the U.S., and then there's certain films they put out Yeah, I mean, obviously it's different rights, you know, and it sounds like Universal's not going to give them the American rights to this, probably, yeah. so. We need to find you a cheap region-free player, Yeah, Trev. <laughs> I guess. They're out there. Just, just, buy, just for the burbs. Just, just for the burbs. Like, By the way, a moment ago we had Corey Feldman talking about the movie The Sentinel. I mean, how many, like, yeah. comedies, with, you know, like, cheesy comedies do you get where they talk about a movie like The Sentinel? Exactly, and, and I don't know, like, like that's why I think Joe Dante is the only guy who, like, really could have done this movie, is, like... And by the way, the, the movie here is actually really, like, keying in on something, though. This story that they're telling about the guy, the the ice cream man who used to live on the block who killed his family, mm-hmm. 
Like that is like I don't know if you had stories like that in your town, but I feel like oh, everyone yeah. does kind of grow up with those stories, you know. And like the movie is really smart, like investing that whole like suburbs thing. How people just get bored in the suburbs, so of course any little thing that happens. And I mean, I know where I live. Um, another neighborhood, not too far, like just down the road from me. Uh, this guy, his like wife went missing, and they ended up finding her dead. And he had her, he had her in a fridge in the basement. Wow. And I mean, that was years ago now, but people still bring that up, obviously, because you know you. Right. You know, what else is there to talk about around here? So. Yeah, and especially, um, I don't, I don't think there was any stories that were true, true like that where I grew up, but I remember if there was ever, like, a vacant house, like, sometimes just, you know, not even, like, a scary closed-down house, but just a house nobody had been living in for a couple years for whatever reason. Like, you know, kids would always make up stories about what happened there and all that, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this was actually, and that's what's great about this movie is, uh, you know, horror comedy, comedy horror, kind of which is it. Um, when they do go with the horror stuff, like, they play it straight up. I mean, Rick Dukeman does a great job of how he kind of embellishes this, you know, local urban legend or whatever. It is funny, though, like, how messed up this house is. You know, it's not like the house could have got that bad just when the Klopaks moved in. Right. I think there is, like, a little... Di- I mean, you watched this last night. I think there's a little line of dialogue that talks about the previous neighbors didn't keep the house up. Yeah, like, but, it never it never said exactly, but I'm assuming they just were old people that couldn't... You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, that happens a little bit when you have older people living in a house. It kind of just goes to shit. Either, you know, obviously they physically can't keep up a huge house like that, or monetarily, too, you know? I almost wonder if the movie... I mean, it suits the purposes of the movie to have the house be really creepy... But I mean, if the movie, if the house just looked as nice as everyone else's did, and that you still had a weird family living in there, would the movie work as well? You think? Yeah, I don't know. I, I gotta I gotta point out this box of cereal real quick though before we get back to the freakies. Like this has to be a fake cereal, right? This freaky yeah, I'm cereal. Sure, I mean, yeah. If it's it's either a fake cereal that Dante obviously created, or it's a real cereal that was a really small thing, but Dante is like the kind of guy who would of course have a box of it, you know? Yeah, and, and of course Corey Feldman's still in his Michael Jackson phase here with this jacket. <laughs> Yeah, and kind of long hair, but yeah. Well, Michael you, Jackson is, or uh, Corey Feldman's still in his Michael Jackson phase. Today. That is true, even though he's kind of disowned the guy half-ass. Yeah. But, but yeah, getting getting back to your point about the house, if the movie would have been insane if it was all creepy and stuff, and yeah, I mean, even if they were doing the weird stuff like the super bright lights coming out of the um, basement and all that shit, I think they probably could have flown under the radar longer. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it's just like, I don't know. Can you imagine having stuff interesting enough happening on your block that for you'd have a date over and you'd just set up lawn chairs on the porch and be like, let's watch our neighbors goof around? <laughs> I know. And, like, the thing that I think is great about this movie is, like, and obviously they do catch on quick that they're being watched by all these guys, but, um, but uh, yeah, it's just like, how long could you do that? Could you just ogle the neighbors over and over <laughs> before, yeah. like, they, you know, they catch you? Pretty much. But yeah, Corey Feldman, he, you know, he's, he's just full blast on it. I like that. There's something too that I just, there's something I like about putting serial killers into like suburbia. Right. And, and just, you know, like I love the movie parents with Randy Quaid. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, and I know this is like kind of when, when they, not to get all serial killer historian, but when the Ed Gein story broke in America, it was kind of really shocking to people because people at that time weren't thinking about 
how that kind of horror could happen in you know a small town or in the suburbs. Right. And then there, it's, even today, there's still something about that. Whenever you know, you, for some reason, we associate that kind of depravity with like rural areas or the uh-huh. city, and it's just like it's still weird to think like, well, could there really be a cannibal family you know <laughs> living in the house next to me? Yeah, and I mean that that's that's the thing is, um, you know, obviously it's much different, but but even. You know, it's the randomness of it. Like even now, mm-hmm. there's 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 something. You know, th- like when there's like a school shooting or just a public place or I mean, the shit. Uh, you hate to bring this up, but for some reason, everybody keeps shooting up movie theaters right now. Yeah. Um. I mean, obviously, it's terrible. It's tragic when it happens, but it's like the scary part about it is that you know and until these people commit uh these acts or whatever they're just you know they're just kind of gliding through society no unnoticed Mm -hmm. you know what i mean and like that's Mm -hmm. the scariness of it and that this could break out at any time and like i think the movies take it a step further and it's like not only could this break out at any time but it could break out in the house next to yours you know what i mean Mm -hmm. and the whole thing is i mean we all we moved to the suburbs right to get away from that kind of stuff and exactly everyone's just gonna be nice in the suburbs and then that's why they can get away with it for so long, right? Because you don't think about you, you don't believe for a moment that somebody in the suburbs could be doing something that evil. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's a way different thing. It's almost like a Walking Dead type scenario. But that's really that's really why I love the show, The Strain, and especially the first season of it. Was there were so many settings, and granted, even though it's a big city, but it's like something as whatever evil and you know the the concept of you losing your identity and becoming like a zombie vampire but the fact that that's just happening right underneath everybody's nose in a major city or out in the suburbs of a major city like it really does up the creep factor in a way that just going to a you know to to me personally it's a lot more creepy than the movies where they break down on a isolated country road at this point you know what i mean Mm mm-hmm Maybe that's what the next Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie should be. It should be the Sawyers living in the suburbs. That would actually be cool. Like, uh... Like, how long could... Like, let's... Like, if the Clopex are the Sawyers, how long could you keep Leatherface, like, a secret from the other neighbors? Exactly. How long would Courtney Gaines be feeding him mashed potatoes in the basement before <laughs> he got out? Oh, oh Courtney Gaines, he... He showed no mercy when he grown the sideburns, didn't he? No. Look at those pants, too, man. I know. Jamming that corpse into the... Uh... And, like, what did, what did Courtney Gaines think that that it's, like... It's just common sense. When you jam something into a trash can, like, the people are going to have to really try hard to get it back out. Like, wouldn't the bag just rip open while the garbage men are trying to get it into the back of the garbage truck? Yeah see the body or whatever well he doesn't seem like the smartest guy in the world <laughs> yeah, so he does he drives the garbage down to the <laughs> street too so. he drives the garbage down that's like not only is it within walking distance to the curb it's like within like throwing distance to the curb and there's something creepy that he drives it down and then backs all the way back up into the garage um, according to the recent things that I, I whatever, I, I think the, the creepy house here is partially still there. Uh, like that big kind of, uh, gothic looking tower thing is, is gone from it. 
but uh, from what I understand, the garage there is still completely intact. If anybody goes to Universal Studios, you can tell you can tell it's the the Klopek house if the garage is right next to it, like that. There, I don't know if you got the subtitles on or anything, but that I was do. just a great example of uh, just the delivery from Tom Hanks on that, where he's like, you know, I, I haven't seen that. Someone come down to the street and, you know, bang the crap out of their garbage with a stick. I've never seen that. <laughs> yeah. That's the, like that kind of just subtle delivery. That's where like Tom Hanks's comedic skills really show through. And I guess, like we said earlier, it's just a bummer he doesn't flex them a little more often today. Yeah, and like uh, his, his tone in this movie, I wouldn't. I wouldn't I wouldn't go as far as to call it sarcastic, but he has kind of just like this little needling like this is ridiculous, this is whatever, nobody's doing anything about this. I can't believe this is going on and just his comments the way he sums things up, you know. And of course, this is what's great about when you shoot on a backlot type situation is you could have a perfectly even rainstorm like this. Yeah. No little sheet here, sheet there, or water falling down. You can just. Psh. I remember one of the first movies I ever saw that really botched that. That I have a memory of is, um, I think it's La- I think it was Last Man Standing with Bruce Willis. Mm-hmm. There's there's a rainstorm scene where you can actually see the spot, like the line where the rain ends in the background. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, it, there's always like sheets of it coming down. Whereas here, this is good. Now I kind of feel like, and I know you said it's a little different, things are changed, but I feel like if I was a filmmaker right now, I would just want to make a movie on the street so bad to be like, yeah, I'm filming on the Burb Street. Oh, yeah. And, you know, that's kind of funny, um, you know, with so much, quote-unquote, runaway production to Canada and even Georgia now and stuff, you would think, you know, they used to, back, in, back in the old-timey days, they used to shoot everything on a back lot or whatever. You think... The even the tax break cost or the whatever you know it's like you get tax breaks when you film in Canada or whatever, but you have to also you know pay for hotels for the crew and the cast and everything. Mm. You would think it'd actually be cheaper, you know. Now you know this is the universal back lot. If you know, and, and what people don't understand is you can rent these things out. Like if like let's say you and me had an independent movie we were making, if we had enough money, we could go shoot on the universal back lot. Yeah, but obviously for Universal it costs them nothing to shoot on the back lot. So you think their own movies? They would just shoot there all the time. You'd save all that money from not putting people in hotels, uh, airplane tickets, whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you think the cost would even out to where we would still be getting lots of um, uh, movies shot on the street here. But but I, I, I'm guessing it's basically like how with Desperate Housewives they maybe they just reserve it for TV shows because that shit really shoots like half year round, you know. Well, if we didn't win, if we didn't know we were watching a Joe Dante movie before, uh now we got Dick Miller and Robert Picardo showing up. Oh, exactly. Also, I just want like just a moment ago, you know, like you said yeah, the movie's mostly funny and it's really goofy, but that visual of looking out your window and seeing three people digging in a rainstorm at the, in the middle of the night actually is pretty creepy. <laughs> it's very creepy, yeah. I, I actually uh, I actually experienced, well, it wasn't a rainstorm, but I actually experienced that a couple months ago. There's some hillbilly guy, I guess, digging for uh, people's uh, personal information in our dumpster here at my apartment complex. And then, like the guy was there for like over an hour and I was just watching him and watching him. Eventually, we called the police, but I think they finally showed up, like, right when he finally left. But, like, it, it is creepy. And, I mean, obviously, I'm sure he's looking for anything he can to steal somebody's identity. But mm-hmm. still, just it was bothering me. Like, I couldn't just let it go. 
I have to say, I really miss Dick Miller. I mean, I could list all the movies like The Terminator and Chopping Mall, just all these great 80s movies that he would just pop up for half a second and be great in. But, mm-hmm. I mean, like, yeah, Dante really used them the best. I mean, he's even just got a tiny cameo here, but I don't know. He's just great. He has a, there's that documentary about him coming out now. Really? Yeah. Oh, I'd love to see it. I think the last movie I can think of that really prominently featured Dick Miller was uh, Tales from the Crypt Demon Knight. Yeah, he, I, I he feel like he pretty much retired from acting, but I do know he did a little cameo in uh, Burying the X, the new Joe Dante movie. Right, yeah, I, need to, I need to see that. Here, obviously, we have the gag of the, the tiny dog who shits on everybody's lawn except for mm-hmm. his owner's. I don't know. I don't know why, but I, I just found this like so strange. The the Bruce Dern half uh, half shaving cream face that he runs out with that he literally stopped shaving just to run out <laughs> to see what was in the garbage. You know. Now, you do feel it was uh, was Corey Feldman thrown in this movie just to get like a younger audience because he really is like he doesn't seem to fit in with the rest of the crew. Obviously, no, it's just the weird odd man out. You know, but it, and there, what's what's kind of you know was weird was uh, watching it. Because I don't even know... I, I mean, I guess maybe he still was a star at this time, Corey Feldman. But it seemed like to me, by this time, he, he had already gone direct-to-video or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, um, I mean, other than obviously the Joe Dante connection, because he was in Gremlins or whatever. It's, it, his character is weird in the way that it's cool to have a younger person around. But sometimes he's, like, with the guys, doing the stuff with them. And then the other half of the time, he's just kind of at his house watching them. It's kind of weird. Yeah. But uh, I don't know if it was the ad-libbed or stuff, but, like, a lot of times, like, here when they go into Walter's house because they think he's missing, um, Corey Feldman has some good kind of lines. It seemed maybe improv, maybe they were in the script, but, like, he, he kind of does add a good dynamic to the, the group with uh, Duke Amon, Dern, and Hanks here. Mm-hmm. Mm. I used to have a TV like that, one of those floor TVs. Yeah, we. Uh, so did I. Growing up, my dad still has it. Is it, it, it? This this is a difference between watching movies from then and now. Isn't it weird when you see? Well, I even see it when, like I said, looking at houses and you notice, like, isn't it weird that there's a time where living rooms weren't set up to feature like a giant TV? You know what I mean? Yeah, I know. Yeah. Do you, I still, like, you'll go over people's houses now and they have, like, a, a living room that has no TV. And you're just like, right. well, what are you doing there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they probably sit in there, open the mail for, like, five minutes a week and then leave. <laughs> Obviously, it kind of... I always thought this was weird, too, The uh, that the Dern's sexy wife puts the little dog on the counter to feed mm-hmm. it. Like, I don't know, just weird. But yeah, the gag, obviously the, the wife thinks she saw a rat, but it was Walter's toupee. Which I don't know, like, I mean, toupees are like always a source of comedy now, but compared to when I was a kid to now, I don't see like a lot of older guys wearing toupees now the way I, the way I did when I was a kid. No, no. Maybe, I mean, it's, when you see them now, they really stick out. Yeah, yeah. Like if you see an older guy now with the, like a bad toupee, you like you know he's really going old school. I think just generationally, you know, people have kind of just dealt with going bald more, you know, and don't yeah. care. 
it, it it's really weird because like if you <laughs> not to go on a weird tangent here, but if you look at the old days, people were out, out you know. I mean, we're, like, really unhealthy now, mostly with obesity and stuff. But, like, if you look at, like, old, even older movies or older TV shows or whatever, people seem to age a lot faster back in the day because of their habits. Like, a lot of people have bad teeth because more people smoked and, you know, like whatever. But at the same time, like, people were in so denial of their aging then compared to now. It's weird. Yeah. That is funny that you say that about the aging. I was like watching uh, the Maltese Falcon the other day, mm-hmm. and I was going online and reading about Humphrey Bogart. And you just always assume in your head, like, man, he must have been like really old when he made all these movies, but he was only in his like thirties and forties. Right, right. And he just looked like he was sixty-five or something. You know? Yeah. And like, and um, like, uh, like also like a thing that you really notice, like if you watch older movies and you see like a woman who's supposed to be like portrayed as hot, but then she's got like super stained-up teeth because she's probably a smoker in real life. Yeah. Although you would never tell because in those old movies, whenever they show the one who's supposed to be hot, they do that through, like, they put Vaseline on the lens. Yeah. (laughs) I know. Soft focus them all into oblivion. I always feel like there was a kind of in-between deleted scene here that we didn't see. And I guess I should watch the word print version. But, like, it just was weird to me that all of a sudden they have all these books about demonology to study. I'll tell you what, man. Now I know you have it. If I ever visit you, we're watching the word print of the birds. Yeah, we'll throw it on. I'll finally take the shrink wrap off the steel book. This little chant that Dukeman does in a bit, though, too, is another one of the, like, in my group of friends, at least, is the one of the oft-quoted lines. We gotta go down to the religious supply store. <laughs> Get a couple gallons of holy water. I really like the fact he's always wearing, like, a, a shirt for his bowling team. Yeah. Like, he really feels like, um... He feels like a character ported in from, like, a 50s sitcom, which I mean in a good way. Like, I, I think right. that's what they're going for with him, you know, that kind of stereotypical, like, you know, gruff suburbanite from, like, the earlier time. Well, I mean, the, yeah, the, the fact that they're shooting, you know, Dante is super old school guy. The fact that they're shooting on a street where so many sitcoms, like, leave it to Beaver a shot. I, yeah. I, I think you're really on to something there with the influence of his, his character. And just, like, even, like, the little stuff here, like, that little look with Hank's plugging his ear and the little twitch he get. I don't know. They're just, I guess we just got to keep calling it Tom Hanks 1.0, but there is just so much great little nuance to the, con- you know, not, not to just shit on people now, but, you know, I mean, we don't see this level of nuance you know, mm-hmm. like Tom Hanks at this time, he was just a straight up, everybody thought of him as just a comedic actor. He maybe did that one movie with Jackie Gleason, but that was about it, being serious. But, you know, we look at the co- comedic actors now who pump out movies left and right, like Kevin Hart, Melissa McCarthy. I mean, people really like them. They're funny, but they, they don't have that nuance in their performances the way Tom Hanks did. No, I mean, it's sad, you know, I'm not as doom and gloom about modern film as you are sometimes, but I do realize... If you made this movie today, the lead role, the, the Tom Hanks role, would be so, like, over the top. Because it would be, yeah. you know, it would be like a Rogan or a Franco, and they would just be, like, going... It would, I don't know, it would just be, like, so different than what Hanks is doing here. You wouldn't be able to make a subtle comedy today like this is. Yeah, I mean, I really feel like Hanks was a comedic actor, not a comedian, if that makes sense. By the way, where does this guy live that you can flip through channels and, like, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 is on, and The Exorcist <laughs> is on... <laughs> In some classic witchery like, movies. Yeah, on. devil ritual movies. 
<laughs> Again, Dante with the cartoonishness. I love that the dog's also reacting to it. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, I mean, obviously I think, you know, even back in the day when, pe- when people were as less savvy about the making of movies as they are now, I mean, people had to notice, because I noticed it when I was fairly young too, that this same street was in so many movies and TV shows. But at the same time, like, I never really feel that this film, for being confined to this street and really just a couple rooms and a couple different houses, I never really felt it that, that it was that claustrophobic or that cheap or anything. No, no. Probably a part of that, too, is it just keeps you so busy with, you know, so many little things going on. It's obviously a well-paced, effective movie because I watched it a hundred times growing up and never got sick of it. And could still rewatch it and love it. Yeah, I mean, it's not a super long movie, but it. I feel like if if it were to be made now, it'd be an eighty-two minute movie. Where I think, you know, this version, the final release version, was like around ninety-six minutes or something. Yeah. You've had you've had this dream before, goat. Yeah, especially with Carrie Fisher on top of yeah, the that's stairs. Yeah, that's what. Yeah. <laughs> it's up. It's up in my dream. She's got that uh, gold bikini on that everybody loves so much. I actually found these people creepy uh, with the horns coming out of the hoods. I mean, like I said, for this being a comedy, like Dante was still like looking for the little imagery and weirdness that would sell it. You know. Yeah. Well, again, and he's a guy you know grew up on Hammer and yeah. you know Amicus and stuff like that. So he wants to bring that imagery in. And then you have the pig heads and stuff. I'm actually sort of surprised. Well, I, and I, who knows? I don't know much about the casting of this film, but the part that Brother Theodore plays in the role, I could have seen that also being like Christopher Lee, you know? Right. But... Yeah, the uh, the casting is great in this. I, but, like, yeah, like I'm, I'm kind of surprised that, uh, I mean, other than at this time, Courtney Gaines kind of was known for Children of the Corn, but other than that kind of surprised uh dante just didn't stack the deck with a lot of like genre veterans you know what i mean mm-hmm. i mean maybe he didn't want to tip his hat into what kind of movie it was i don't know i don't really yeah. remember I, I remember seeing this in the theater i do have a memory of that what i don't remember is the how this movie was promoted like it was yeah you know did the promotion sell the fact that it was about serial killers or were they just selling it as a goofy movie in the suburbs you know you, you know, it's, it's kind of funny, but, uh, I mean, some of them would come out during different times of the year and, uh, you know, not be as big because of that. But, like, I never remember anybody ever saying, like, oh, the new Tom Hanks movie is just okay. Like, it seemed like everybody loved every Tom Hanks movie. Like, I would, it seems like probably the Money Pit was the, you know, or probably the one that people talked about the least. But, I mean, even then, like, just all his movies had a had a good reputation. Mm-hmm. I will say though too, and we've—I know—I think you and I have talked about this before, maybe even on another podcast. I mean, one of the reasons, and I guess this is going to come up a lot in this '80s movie graveyard, you know, show. But one of the reasons I saw this movie as much as I did as a kid is just when cable first started, right. they only had like 40 movies to show. So I mean, the same movies were on over and over again, and that's why there's a whole generation of people like me and you who are obsessed with movies like this and Clue and, you know, Big Trouble Little China, Last Dragon. Like, you just, you saw those movies so many times every week, you know? 
Oh, yeah, I remember I watched once bitten probably 30 or 40 times as a kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I kind of wonder, because, you know, the modern era was, you know, streaming being popular and, you know, movie channels really not being movie channels anymore, being kind of more net TV networks at this point. And hell, even Netflix becoming more of a TV network than a, mo- a movie streaming service at this point. I wonder if, you know, 20 years from now, people will be quite as nostalgic for this time as we are for the 80s because they wouldn't have had those movies pounded into their head over and over, you know, the way mm-hmm. we did as a kid. That was a, we just had a pretty good comedic moment with uh, Dukeman and Bruce Dern acting like little kids being yelled at by their friend's mom. <laughs> yeah. Sneaking up to the door to put a note in. <laughs> They're such pussies about it too. Yeah, when I was when I was watching the movie uh, the other night, um, this scene kind of surprised me because I could see Hanks and Dukeman doing this. But I was surprised Dern was such a pussy about it. Well, that's what I think is great about the Dern character because right? you obviously the temptation is to play that character as like a real tough guy, right? But the movie goes a more comedic route with it, where he's he definitely thinks of himself as tough, but the movie doesn't go overboard with that. Exactly. Kind of makes makes him into the fool a lot throughout the film. That's great, the little hand just coming to pick up the note. You know, like, even the shot of when Hanks was, you know, drinking his orange juice or whatever, and the pan over to uh, him looking out the window, and that little shot, you know, through the porch and all that... Like, I mean, I just, you know, I know I say this all, well, me and Corey say this all the time. Like, we really compliment these older films that are seen as just basic, nothing flashy, whatever films. They have great cinematography, and they look great still to this day, I think. Like, like as far as contemporary cinema goes, I, I, I wish we could get out of this shaky, ugly frame handheld era that we're just stuck in right now for some reason. Mm-hmm. Well, these directors of the 80s, too, grew up on, you know, TV and movies that were, like, more flat and static. And so they that's what their influences were. Unfortunately, we have directors today that grew up on music videos and all that, so, you know. Right. And I gotta say, like, yeah, like, these, the you know, these older movies, these older directors, I just, I don't know, like, I just, I just get off so more, so much more of just seeing, uh, you know... And, I mean, this movie, you know, it has a lot of cuts in it. It's not super s- slow cut or anything like that. But, like, I miss looking at a pretty frame that that I can actually absorb with my eyes and take in a lot of story information, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. I mean, just like that shot, you know, they had the little inserts or whatever, the dog brick coming up with the bone. But still, it was just kind of a great comedic moment where they're, they're arguing, arguing, the, the dog's just kind of in the background there holding the bone in his mouth while they argue. And just like 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 there hasn't been you know staging too like you know actors uh, hitting their marks like there is a lot going on in this frame the actors coming closer to the camera you know so just I don't know like I I kind of miss I feel like the visual art of filmmaking was more in service of the story back in the day whereas now it's kind of just like to either just whip you up into a frenzy or do whatever but like I, I feel like these older films tell the story better. That one shot there of them, their backs walking towards the, the house, I'm pretty sure you, you can see that dead, 
hill up there that almost looked like the psycho hill mm. the extreme zoom in and out of them screaming there. <laughs> that, that part's great that's a pic, the, the picture of them screaming too like if you look up the burbs as yeah. an image search that's usually the, the picture that you know that's become a pretty iconic image in this film I'm, I'm sure a gif or a gif too of that zooming in and out yeah that's a great little visual joke the, the zoom in and out like that I would I would I could see myself using that if I made a movie and wanted to do a little nod to this. Yeah, it, it's funny because they're, you know, also talking about this film, kind of walking a tightrope of tone and whatever here. That was a clearly just over-the-top moment, but it's like we kind of buy it just because they're so, these guys, are their nerves are so shot already at this point. Mm-hmm. I love that part, too, where he, out of frustration he crushes the beer cans and his wife yeah. calls him out on it. I feel like Carrie Fisher does totally like you're right. Like in terms of how you know cute she is or anything, she really just looks like the kind of if you were going to end up in the suburbs with like kind of a boring wife, that's the kind of boring wife you want, you know? Like, yeah, I would. I would actually. I mean, Dern's wife is like kind of you know the sex pot. Right? Yeah, but but I I would actually pick Carrie Fisher. Mm-hmm. Carrie Fisher's hair is a little too short in this movie, but other than that, she's she's I don't know. She seems like somebody that'd be easier to get along with. Mm-hmm. Again, this this being a backlot, I, I I feel like Dante took that as a uh, as a challenge to come up. I mean, these crane shots are great here. I feel like he took that as a challenge to visually kind of let this movie flourish. I love that the garbage just stays in the street for the rest of the movie. <laughs> yeah, because Dick Miller didn't want to pick that shit back up. <laughs> Darren looks so funny too in his uh, his old uh, tight ass. Uh, military uniform here <laughs> just looks so disgusted to be holding a plate of brownies i know he's trying to hold them so regally yeah <laughs> that's not the face you want to see behind the curtain there. and i i i uh i feel like again the callback with the porch falling in uh I feel like Courtney Gaines had to have gone to the Jonah Hill teeth store for this one. Because <laughs> those teeth are completely coming out of his mouth. It's so funny how bewildered Courtney Gaines is that somebody's coming by, stopping by in like a hospitable way. Mm-hmm. Ooh, Courtney Gaines got some neck beard going on there too. That's nasty. He went to the Jonah Hill tea store and the Andrew Luck beard store. <laughs> I was surprised when they went inside the. Ho- I mean, the house is like all old as hell and cobwebbed up, but it's really not that like di- diabolical, really inside. No. But I guess you know. Again, do you play your hand that early, and do you, how creepy right. do you make it look? You know, you still need to have. You need to sell the idea that they could all be wrong, too. You know? Yeah. I, th- I think they did a good job of that, too, with having Courtney Gaines be so timid in this scene as well. Mm-hmm. Like, like I, this scene, like, especially with uh, Courtney Gaines here and Bruce Dern kind of giving the full court press here, you almost start to feel sorry for the, the Clopex a little bit here. Yeah. Well, I mean, you could, the other way to sell this film, right, or the other way to portray it, and I feel like if it was made today, they might actually go this route is just have it be where it's about ugly Americans, right? And this could right. just be a foreign family that is has different customs and 
everyone just jumps to the the conclusion that they're evil, but really they're just different, you know. Yeah, because I think there's even a line here. I think it's Dern, where he talks, he brings up their name, and he's like, "What is that, Slovak? Like, wh- yeah. like, what are you?" Kind of in a, you know, almost racist way. Like, what are you? Got gotta love uh, Dukeman's, uh outfit here. That he thought this would be ultimate stealth mode for the middle of the day. <laughs> Put on black pants, black gloves, black shirt with yellow stripes, and just like cover half his face in shoe polish. He's got white socks on too. Yeah. And oh, it's it's just another bowling shirt too. Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> and like, uh, really, just watching it again right now, being super critical. Uh, like like you said, with the trash still being in the street, you know, calling back Dern falling into the the. The porch there, and then also the out the headless owl statue up there. Like they mm-hmm. really do come back time and time again to like the little things that happen, you know. It's like I love Dern playing with the wallpaper here and just <laughs> yeah. tearing it up. Tearing. What a rude thing to do in somebody's house! <laughs> like, what did he think he was going to find under that wallpaper? And he tries. I like when he got that far too before he realized, oh crap! <laughs> yeah. I love the, I love that shot of the old man just staring. At him. <laughs> and I mean, it, like it, obviously, you know, this is uh, something that a, an actor, a human being, can't control. As you get older, your hair changes texture and shape and all kinds of shit. But like, wasn't there something really funny about Tom Hanks 1.0? It's just kind of curly i don't know mop of hair that kind of just sat on top of his head and couldn't really be styled any real way you know what i mean yeah like you see him now like i think he kind of started with the uh what was it the uh da vinci code that he likes to go a lot a lot of stringy uh long hair looks now i I really kind of miss just the uh more clean cut uh thanks pretzels and sardines that's not bad <laughs> it's a good snack. I, I love Hank's um, uh, the way he uh, takes so long to pull that sardine. Out. <laughs> There's something so gross about it. It is. You can see it like on his fingers, like how gross it looks. gelatinous it is and shit. Yeah. Yeah, they could have cut away right before he put it into his mouth. I'm not a sardine guy. What about you? I've actually never eaten sardines, but uh, I, I, I actually occasionally like anchovies on pizza. So, mm-hmm. but there's just the idea of just eating a you know like a squishy wet one or whatever. Yeah, I don't know. That old, <laughs> that old guy is just great. <laughs> Are, are you familiar with the old guy, the grandpa guy here, who he is? I know it's Brother Theodore. Yeah. Um, I, I believe he's like a TV personality from, I'm not sure, like how, uh, I want to say 50s maybe. but Yeah, I'm trying to look it up here just because he, I'm getting so curious about the guy. Let's see. <laughs> you kept saying Brother Theodore. I thought that was the name of his character. <laughs> No, that's that's his. No, name. that's like his. It's his stage name. Yeah, like, yeah, he was he was like a comedian who I think had his whole gimmick was that he was um, 
I, I think he did a gimmick as a, uh, I don't know about, I don't want to say creepy foreign guy, but, yeah. you know, the weird German guy. That was his whole gimmick. Yeah, he was a, he's credited as a German-American monologist and comedian known for rambling stream of consciousness dialogues, which he called stand-up tragedy. So, yeah, definitely had a weird gimmick going on there. Wow, it's, it seems like he was um, seems like he was kind of the real life Goodwill Hunting. It says when he came to America, he was a janitor at Stanford University, where he demonstrated his prowess at chess by beating thirty professors simultaneously. Yeah, yeah. it's interesting. Look, looks like he had a comeback of sorts in the mid seventies. Maybe that's where Joe Dante, he got on Joe Dante's uh, radar. Yeah. Brother Theater lived a full life, died 2001, 94. Not too bad. Not too shabby. Not too shabby. I would love to make it to that age. Well, I'd like to make it to, like, Stan Lee's version of 94. <laughs> yeah. Not some of the 94-year-olds I've actually seen. <laughs> yeah, that, that is true. That is true. Although Brother Theodore, right? Let's do a little bit of math here. Brother Theodore here, he probably in his seventies when he made this movie. Yeah. If he died at ninety four in two thousand one, he was still in great shape then. Well, promise me if you make it to the seven, you're seventy four or whatever, go with the old dress like this and have your hair styled like that. Oh yeah, that that hair is classic. Half of it puffed up going to the back, <laughs> half of it going to the front. And now we come to the real creepster of the movie, <laughs> emerging from the basement. This guy, this guy terrified me as the fake uh, Walt Disney in Beverly Hills Cop Three. <laughs> I don't know. I I love Henry Gibson. Oh yeah, he, I mean he's just I don't know like he, he's funny and creepy at the same time. Oh wow, totally didn't realize he was on laughing. I used, oh, yeah, yeah. I actually yeah. got, believe it or not, I actually got into laughing as a kid when they started rerunning it on yeah, so Nick I. at Night or whatever it was. I mean, even as recently, I think he died, what, uh... 2007. 2000, okay. Or no, wait, let's see. Uh... 2009 he died. Yeah, 2009. Yeah, he's he was a he was a recurring character on Boston Legal, and he was still great on that. He played like a really like a kind of weird kind of comedic judge. Oh wow! But he was one of those actors who just you know didn't pop up in, in a lot, but whenever he popped up, he was I just I was always excited to see him. And I mean, a lot of that comes from this, obviously, you know, because I don't I'm sure I saw this before I got into Nick at Night, or maybe I don't know, or uh, I mean, laughing. Um, whatever the case, I mean, I was always just like, oh, that's the Burbs guy, you know. Then later I'd be like, oh, okay, you know, Blues Brothers and Nashville and things like that. Biodome. <laughs> <laughs> he did it. He did it. I don't know if it was a movie or a TV show, but he, uh, 2002 he did No Prom for Cindy. I'm curious to uh, check that out. Oh, he was in Big Stand, one of Corey G's favorite movies. That's his, that was, I just thought that was his last movie. <laughs> yeah. Way to go out. <laughs> yeah, way to go out. But, um,. Yeah, also Magnolia, he was frighteningly creepy. Magnolia mm. as well. And the, uh, I don't even, I don't know if it was, I guess it was technically a gay bar that uh, William H. Macy always hung out in. He's also in the uh, the Kentucky Fried movie, another favorite of mine. Oh, I love that movie. 
been actually been a long time since I've seen it. I'll have to remedy that. By the way, this this painting is not that hard to figure out, by the way. <laughs> no, yeah, Bruce Turnkey's turning it upside down or whatever. Yeah. I think it's Henry Gibson that finally writes it. Well, Courtney Gaines looks like he'd never seen the touch of a woman before. You <laughs> mean in the movie or just in general? <laughs> nah, I've seen other movies where he got tons of... Like, Courtney Gaines got tons of... Courtney Gaines, I, gu- I guarantee you, from the years of 1983 to 1985, probably got more pussy than you and me will in our lifetimes combined. Well, I know. I just don't want to think about it. <laughs> that is kind of... Actually, Like I just said that it kind of is a half joke, but... It's kind of depressing when I think uh, all the women Courtney Gaines probably been with way more than me. <laughs> Pretty sad. I don't. I, I don't even have like uh, red lamb chop sideburns. So there's something uh, about seeing that many burning candles. Like when you ever see a bunch of burning candles in a movie like that, and all the wax going everywhere, it always makes me nervous. Yeah. You know, the other thing, too, is, like, we've been in the house for a while now at this point. If this movie was made today, once they're in, this scene would be over within, like, three minutes. Exactly. Just they wouldn't let the scene play out as long. But it's the, the length of the scene is what makes it uncomfortable, and that makes that just cranks up the comedy to be that uncomfortable. Yeah, I feel like, I don't know, like, I really liked it. I, I think really the only director I can think of, as far as, far as American directors now, that kind of lets scenes... You know, they're completely different than, like, this, of course. But the only director I can think of that lets really scenes kind of breathe like this now is Tarantino. Yeah. Like, uh, and I kind of miss that out of 80s movies. You know, maybe it was out of budget, or maybe, I think maybe it was actually more that people didn't have such a high expectation of spectacle of movies back then. But I kind of like sometimes where you had scenes that would be so long in movies that were, like, kind of set pieces, but they really weren't, like, big grand things, you know what I mean? They just mm-hmm. were kind of scenes that would kind of build and build and build to a payoff. Like, in a weird way, I almost think, uh, actually, both Universal movies made a few years apart, I think, but... In a weird way, I, like like let's say you were at a drive-in or something. I actually think this and Wes Craven's People Under the Stairs would kind of make a good double bill. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. Which, uh, People Under the Stairs actually has a, a remake in the works. Does it? Um, yeah, could you imagine if someone decided to remake The Burbs today? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> crazier things have happened, but that is true. Well, I mean, let's let's speak in remakes and whatever because we keep getting you know the other. Kind of classic uh, Joe Dante film, Gremlins. We keep getting threatened with the CGI lady remake of that. Let's just talk about uh, Joe Dante. I mean, obviously it's you know it's sad, but it's it's kind of par for the course when guys just get older in age or whatever. But like, what do you think about Joe Dante's career? Because like, I really I know he didn't have the best of times with his last like really big movie, which was that Looney Tunes movie. Mm-hmm. Like, the way he explained it recently on a podcast was he kind of just felt like Warner Brothers just wanted to make a movie because they had the characters and they thought they could make money. Um, but uh, they didn't really understand the characters per se, you know what I mean? And so yeah. I guess he got fought on, like, a lot of things or whatever. But what do you... I, I don't know, like, I... You know, I don't know, like, I just... 
the the last uh, Joe Dante movie I really like was actually Small Soldiers. I think it still had a lot of his kind of wit and like uh, I don't know, like his little flourishes as a director or whatever. But I don't know, like I just I feel kind of bad. Uh, like uh, I haven't seen Burying the Axe yet. I saw his other last movie, The Hole, which I didn't think was bad, even though it was just clearly just kind of a children's film. But um. I don't know, I, I kind of wish the second half of his career would have been a little better, or if he would have worked a little more, because he worked quite a bit in the 80s, slowed down a little bit in the 90s in terms of he was working, but he was doing a lot of shit for TV, and then in the 2000s, like, his movie career kind of, I don't know, just slowed down to a, a drip, I guess, you know? Yeah, I mean, because I know he's, like, directing TV now, he directs, I mean, he even does, like, Hawaii Five O. you know, directs episodes of that, but, um... I do like I I love Dante and I feel like, I mean I like Small Soldiers too. It's not one of my favorites, but I, I think that's uh, I mean having not seen the whole, I guess to me that's where I'd be like, well, I guess that's where Joe Dante's over. Right. I certainly don't want to. I don't like that Looney Tunes movie very much. But, but I feel like um, it's weird, cause, and it's not that people don't talk about Joe Dante. It's not that he's not a big deal, but there's a part of me that bristles a little bit that he doesn't get the same attention and reverence today that you know Carpenter and Craven do. Because I just feel like he was in right. that league, and I mean, you think about we're talking about. I mean, this movie, The Gremlins, The Howling, you know, like you know, Inner Space. I, I really wish he. I, it's, I wish he was talked about more today. I, I mean, I don't. You know, I don't hear it talked about that much. And recently, he's gone on record as saying the movie Explorers was kind of a half finished movie. But mm-hmm. I loved Explorers. To me, Explorers went. I, I think Joe Dante did kind of the Amblin Steven Spielberg thing just as good as uh, Steven Spielberg did, honestly. Yeah. Especially with that film. Well, and, and I know, and I, I'm sure you'll agree with this because your sensibilities and mine are similar on this. And, you know, I know Bird would agree with this, or Buddy Bird. But um, the other great thing about Dante is Dante really feels like one of the last connections to that, those filmmakers who grew up in the 50s and loved that like 50s sci-fi and monster movie vibe and we're right. super into that and of course you know that's why it does trailers from hell today but i mean now you know you know just obviously is going to be the case but younger directors today grow up and their influences are more like the 80s movies and, and 70s movies and that's cool but i just like dante is such a connection to hollywood's past and just to hear him tell stories about that stuff and you know he's also one of the last pure connections to roger corman Right. Uh, worked with him for a long time, cut the trailers, you know, um, did Piranha for him. Cut, cut right. even before Piranha, he kind of cut together some movies that were literally just kind of clips of other movies. Yeah, like Hollywood Boulevard. Movie um, Orgy, all that kind of shit. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I love Dante, and I mean, I, I his filmography to me is, you know, 90% stellar. Um, yeah, I, I kind of run into this with other guys, like... Um, you know, like John Carpenter, George Romero, like I kind of feel like people, maybe they don't remember every single movie that these guys made or whatever, and they kind of just remember like a couple good ones and a couple so-so ones, but it's like, it's like, holy shit, like you're going to tell me the same guy made Piranha, um, The Howling, uh, Gremlins, Explorers, like kind of the best, I think, part of twilight zone the movie uh inner space the burbs and like that was just pretty much his 80s stuff pretty much you know it's mm-hmm. aside from prano's like 70 late 78 or whatever like whatever like within 10 years this guy knocked out a filmography that was like i'm sorry but i don't see anybody right now knocking out a filmography that great you know back to back to back like 
he like you know like sometimes I get I feel like I put you know I don't want to put listeners off or whatever because like well you know like I don't even really know who I'm talking to but like sorry motherfuckers got to appreciate Joe Dante a lot more than they do like yeah they really you know. I mean, even going in the night, I mean, you talk about Gremlins 2, that's still one of my favorite sequels ever, because he totally got how to make a funny, he, you know, he got the idea, before 22 Jump Street did it, Right. he was already making fun of his own movie, you know, with the sequel. And, like, also, too, I mean, I, critically, you know, it did well and stuff, but I feel like, you know, I'm hoping the nostalgia kind of rolls around for uh for matinee which was really oh yeah you can tell it was totally a love letter to his childhood you know what i mean mm-hmm. he's the kind of guy who today what i wish instead of you know because i haven't seen burying the x i've heard pretty mixed things about it right but i feel like and i, I think this is true of some of the older older guys too like because craven i don't really i really don't want to see him just cranking out these like scream movies that get worse and worse each time you know right and I kind of wish, like, Dante and them would put their energy into creating a TV series that kind of hits their sensibilities that they could then run and not have to direct every episode. But, you know, I could see, like, this... Everything that, that we love about Joe Dante's films, I could see it translating to a pretty successful show nowadays on cable. Yeah, I, I kind of feel like all this kind of detail and, I don't know, like, these... You know, the actual... The, the real... Stel- storytelling director influence in a weird way is getting appreciated more you know the kind of the i don't know like it's it's kind of getting appreciated more in the tv arena mm-hmm. and it's not in the, not like you know a lot of people say well tv now is better than the movies like i don't know how much of that's true but like to me it's kind of like tv now is i feel like for a long time tv was trying to be a version of movies that you could watch at your house Whereas I feel now TV is doing something different. I think TV's trying to tell the story and, and movies are trying to show you the spectacle. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Of course, we had some more great physical comedy here. Rick Dukeman trying to climb the power line and get electrocuted to hell. <laughs> I don't even turn his fingernails black. I love that touch. <laughs> yeah. And you can hear his fillings sizzling when he touches them. He's just happy, even though he, like, pretty much died there. He's just happy that he got the Clopex (laughs) alarm taken off. By the way, earlier he also had, like, a spade thrown and land on his head. He's not having a great couple days. Yeah, you definitely uh, start seeing the uh, Dante uh, Looney Tunes vibe. Yeah, oh, I mean, the the Rick Dukeman-shaped hole on the <laughs> roof roof of the shed, too, yeah. Yeah, like, in a, I mean, there was a few little shots here and there throughout the movie, but it was actually this part here where Bruce Stern gets up on the roof to start doing reconnaissance that you can see kind of the, you know, I guess the, the rest of uh, uh, Studio City and all that. Like, uh, re- like this is the first time where it kind of, it, it, like, before I always felt like this movie was supposed to take place, and I'm sure it probably still is supposed to take place, but, like, it, it kind of had me fooled in the illusion that was taking place in middle America, you know what I mean? Mm. Whereas, like, you can tell once he gets up on the roof here and you start seeing some of the surrounding areas, you can definitely tell it's L.A., I have to say, though, like, just what we were talking about before, just seeing this fake neighborhood, and 
it makes me more nostalgic for a time when, uh, you know, people lived in older houses and everything kind of looked a little more Americana. You know what I mean? I mean, this is clearly a Hollywood facsimile of that, but uh, it still does the job. Don't worry, the hipsters will bring it back. <laughs> you think so? <laughs> With the craftsman houses and shit. It's kind of funny. Well, I mean, like, like hipsters now, right, are, are into, like, looking like they're from the 1800s. We'll hit a right. point where hipsters will be into, like, 50s suburbia, right? And right. <laughs> Not just uh, rockabilly music fans, but actually all hipsters. Yeah. Maybe we'll get malt shops opening up again. I could actually go, I'll be honest with you, I could actually go for a malt shop. <laughs> I wouldn't even care if I went in there and was sitting next to a bunch of kids. It'd still be fun to me. You know, I just watching this movie the other night. Um, I don't know. It's just like I've, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, to be fair, like I still watch a, a ton of new movies. I still usually part for the course for me is to go see two movies, you know, theatrically every week. So it's not like I'm turning my. It's not like I'm just retreating into my basement to watch my old VHS tapes by no means but uh yeah I just keep getting more and more nostalgic for uh you know filmmaking from the past because like A it looks better to me B I kind of appreciate the acting styles from the past a little more but C it's just like yeah like you know talking about you know if they were ever to make this movie but like you really just don't see the kind of uh oddball types of stories that you used to, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'm kind of, kind of bored with the stories that Hollywood is choosing to tell right now. You couldn't tell. Hey. F- <clears throat> Sorry, go ahead. Corey Feldman's buddy that just showed up there is uh, Nikki Cat, right? Who's going on to be a pretty recognizable character actor since this movie? Yeah, I was, that's what I was just about to say. You couldn't really recognize him in that long shot, but they show him close up later. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah, he, when he had his hair grown out, he totally had a. Uh, uh, afro mullet, I would say. <laughs> I like Nicky Cat, though. He's another guy I feel like never got the big break he deserved. I love him. I'm Obviously, stuff like um, Dazed and Confused. I love the Richard Linklater movie, Suburbia. Yeah. Based on Way the of book. the Gun. Yeah, I was about to say Way of the Gun's great. Way of the Gun actually turned me into somewhat a uh, kind of combination of Way of the Gun and Equilibrium kind of turned me into a Tay Diggs fan. That's another guy, right there in the background. You can still you can see Studio City, but yeah, Tay Diggs is another guy. I kind of wish would have had a better career. Mm-hmm. Of course, Dern with his uh, I guess probably his coffee and his animal crackers up there. You know, just thinking though, like one thing I as I'm watching, I'm realizing is this movie's not dated at all. In that there's nothing mm-hmm. in this movie that like a cell phone would solve. So you don't right. mind that they don't have them, right? Um, it still it plays this movie could play exactly the same if made today. Yeah, I mean, like the only they might be using cell phones instead of walkie talkies here. Yeah, but... and like and like it, it's a little more readily available that you could probably go down and buy like security cameras and set them up. Like maybe they could use them to spy on the family a little bit more. But yeah, you're right. I mean, this that was another thing. You know, watching this movie the other night, it was like. Uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff that really hit me. They're like, they would never make this movie now. But then there's a lot of stuff where I was like, this movie is, like, timeless. You know what I mean? It just really is. There's really nothing that's, like, 
you know, even filmmaking wise, there's nothing that's super trendy. Like it's very classic in its cinematography and the way the story unfolds. There's nothing that really even screams 1989 about this, you know? Yeah. Um, maybe some of those outfits. Yeah, Corey Feldman's buddies. Really, even well. Even that chick with that day glow shit, like all that, all that kind of came back in the style. Yeah, it's a good stunt. Yeah, there's a great stunt here. And I, I love how back in the day you could just like be so random with stuff. Like Dern falls off the roof with a rifle, he shoots a car window, but like they never really even explain whose car window he shot out. <laughs> I mean, I'm assuming it was. Uh, you know his 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 car in his driveway, but it could have easily been like a car across the street or something like that. Mm-hmm. I just love these guys; they're so determined. They don't like they didn't bother fixing any of the stuff they did in the backyard. No, I mean they just know like they're sure they're going to find something. Cause you, there's no coming back from what they're doing. This is kind of like uh, I wonder if there's any inspiration. For the Kevin Bacon movie, Stir of Echoes, with <laughs> the constant digging <laughs> up of the backyard. <laughs> yeah, Nikki, Nikki Cat earlier wanted the show to get on the road because he had to go to work in a couple hours. Clearly, he didn't show up to the Burger King or wherever he worked at because now he's uh, hanging out for the night. Oh. This being the 80s movie Graveyard, as we always do, Trev, we got to point out when we got streets that have been wetted with hoses. We definitely, oh, had, right. we definitely had a wet, shiny street right there. <laughs> yep. Because they always say that uh, the filmmakers like the, um, you know, the reflections of the lights. It looks more yeah. cinematic. Sidewalk's yep. not wet, but... <laughs> really, none of uh, Corey Feldman's buddies noticed them pull up there. I know. Right in front of their house. And I thought this was a great scene. The the point where uh, Hanks, uh, you know, Duke went, they buried him in a crypt. You hit a crypt. Come on, I'll get the blowtorch. It's like, it, it just, it didn't occur to these dumbasses that it's probably like a water line or a gas line mm-hmm. or something like that. The, um... Oh, another thing I forgot to bring up about the street here was I was reading some trivia. Apparently, one of the houses is the Munster's house. Oh, yeah. And it's supposedly so, like, instantly recognizable that Dante actually had to shoot around it. Like, they tried to dress it up to not look like it, but uh, he intentionally, like, didn't show an angle that way or something. I'm not sure which house it is in the background here or whatever, but, yeah, they, they said they shot around it so it wouldn't really, you know, they, they never showed the full house full on so that mm. i'm surprised he it. wouldn't have just wanted it to show up in like one shot right like, right you know. just like while well, somebody's crossing a street or something yeah what a bit of great twist for the end of the film just like to suddenly pan over and reveal that the monsters do live on the street <laughs> yeah. and nobody's bothered by them they were just worried about the clopex like when they when they cart the copex off like lily monsters like oh thank god i don't like weird neighbors or something <laughs> yeah. that would have been a great joke they're just all so used to the monsters, you know. They don't think they're anything of them. Yeah. I, I, are you, speaking of the monsters, are you with me? Because I never really thought about it because I was so young when I watched the show. But when I see like pictures or whatever of the monsters now, like I'm surprised how hot Lily Monster is. 
Like, I'm not familiar with the actress, but she must have been a good-looking woman to actually look good and still, like... I'm more of a, a uh, I'm more of a Morticia Adams kind of guy. Yeah, that, that not, works, too. Not, not Angelica Houston, but the original. No, Morticia. yeah. I don't think anybody's a uh, Angelica Houston devotee. So that Gomez and Morticia is also probably the... What is it? Wouldn't you say that's, like, the most loving relationship ever in TV or cinema? <laughs> I think that's, so. That's, that's what you want, man. If like you want a relationship like that, you know. Yeah, there's no conflict with uh, how much they love each other or whatever. You know, I have to admit, like uh, you, you were talking earlier about how you kind of almost feel bad for Courtney Gaines during that one scene, and mm-hmm. this is like the power of like Dante's filmmaking and how he. And no matter how many times I see this movie and I know where it's going. The look on Henry Gibson's face when the house blows up and they ask him, "Is that your house?" I still feel bad for them. Yeah, like it's weird. Like there's, it's just it's really well done, you know, because they're still trying to, you know, you not tip its hat all the way yet. Well, here too, like when they pull up and then they go and get the cops. Like you, you figure like, well, if they're really bad guys, they wouldn't go get the cops or whatever. But um, I don't know. Like this part of the movie too, I, you almost start feeling like too, like especially when you see how crazy for no reason Hanks and Dukeman are. You, like, you kind of start to feel bad for them, too. You start to feel like they are, like you said, maybe just like a foreign family who's just weird and strange customs of getting picked on, you know? Mm-hmm. But uh, I forgot, the, I didn't get a chance to point out there, but when Feldman, like, jumped in front of their car and then jumped on the cop car, especially when he kind of just, like, jumped on the street. I mean, they were only going, like, whatever, 10 miles an hour. But I was surprised, like, that he just jumped out in front of the car like that. I could easily see that going wrong. Yeah, look at that. Look, look how sad yeah. Henry Gibson looks. Henry Gibson. You know, uh, if the, we, we've talked before about like this summer, every movie has to have like a controversy. Right. If this movie <laughs> did come out today the way it is, man, people would just be like, oh, so this movie's just saying all foreign people are serial killers. And oh, murderers. yeah. You know, they just oh, just because Why couldn't they have been an American family and been killers? Why'd you have to make <laughs> You know, uh, we were talking about uh, great uh, old man hairstyles earlier. Talking about Brother Theodore, I I, I, I can't let it go by. Talk, I mean, he kind of even had an old man hairstyle when he's young too. But Joe Dante's got some awesome old man hair going yeah, on. Yeah, he does. Like he still keeps it like that seventies era length. How it's just kind of like long all over and puffed out all over. It's great. That's what I, I want my hair Tom to be Hanks like. Just uh, like slid down the steps right there. Oh, that was great! Yeah, like like basically, if you're not following along with the DVD, Hanks comes out of the the burning house because he he uh, hit the gas line. He comes out and it's great. It's it's all one shot, and uh, he comes out the front. He you know slides down and says like say, and like the whole front of the house collapses right behind them. Like mm-hmm. talk like I don't know, it, I I don't know if they did that in one take or what, but I mean talk about. You know, choreographing something that, A, it's kind of dangerous. Like, your lead actor's right there, and you're letting this big thing drop. But, like, it kind of seemed like something, if you didn't get it right on the first take, they would have been screwed, you know? Yeah. But it's it's just great. Like, that's, you know, I don't know. Like, you kind of don't get that feeling of, like, little scenes like that are a wild accomplishment that, you you know, now in films where everything's just CGI and just, you know, they just kind of added it in later. Like, that was actually a live thing that happened, and they had a capture in camera. I never quite understood, though, why Carrie Fisher came home early, other than it was just the end of the movie. Yeah, I feel like maybe in the work print, maybe there's something that explains that. Yeah. 
was like, it could be something missing. Why is that guy wearing a bow tie? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> tied like an investigator guy. Yeah. Oh, Rance Howard pops up in this film. Yeah, well. that was cool. Rance Howard popped up. I want to I want to say that this was from the in in judging from the entitles. I want to say this is a, what do you call it, like an imagined movie, like Brian Grazer and Ron Howard. Maybe that's why he popped up. Yeah, yeah, it is imagined. I believe. Yeah, I kind of love this. Obviously, you know, we get a big um, reveal here in a second about the Clopex, but even beyond that, I kind of like this whole. You know, once the house blows up, I kind of like the whole wrap ups scene here it's really done well with all the different things going on tracking all the different characters and the realizations they're coming to about how dumb they've been and all that it's really well done well this is a good time this is uh, so this a lot of this is reshoots i'm guessing because this is where i can talk about the original ending Mm -hmm. um the original ending is pretty similar except it it cuts out a lot of the action um it just kind of goes to when tom hanks is in the the ambulance and just like now henry gibson shows up and attacks him in the ambulance Mm-hmm. But people, but everyone is just standing around the ambulance, and they hear something. They hear like the struggle, and they open the door and see him trying to attack him, right. and and instantly arrest him. And we don't get the whole like the gurney coming out, the chase scene. Like that's none of that is there, and we don't even we don't even get the moment with like the trunk opening up and revealing all the the bones Skulls. and the, yeah. yeah. And really, it ends with um, it's a, I think it's a little too on the nose, and that's why I'm glad they changed it. It ends with Henry Gibson as they're arresting him and carting him off. He goes on this big rant about how the suburbs are like worse. They they always live in the cities, but the suburbs are worse than anything because this is the only place where they were constantly bothered and suspected. And it really just felt like suddenly the movie was like making like just ending up playing. See, see, this is what we're trying to say about the suburbs that people are, are even weird in the suburbs. And it just kind of feels really unnecessary because obviously the movie's doing that itself. You know, you don't need a character to, to do a speech about it. Yeah, to cram it down your throat like that. Yeah, so I'm actually glad. I'm glad they changed it not just for the extra action beats, which I do like, but just to also take that out. Yeah, I have to say, you know, most movies, reshoots don't really work out. You can ask Josh Trank about that, but uh, yeah. I think this may be one of the... Maybe it's also, too, because they didn't fire Joe Dante and make him go work at Burger King or whatever. But, right. but, but maybe, but yeah, this is a case where, you know, kind of tinkering with the filmmaker involved, you know, now this is where i love like comedic tom hanks is when he just goes completely spastic oh yeah especially when hanks 1.0 goes full bobblehead that's Mm -hmm. when it gets great (laughs) you just i love when he like throws himself into the ambulance in the gurney (laughs) yeah yeah that's the best when when he wants he lays on the gurney he wants to be taken away and nobody's doing anything so he gets up starts pushing it himself (laughs) Screaming, I'm sick, take me away. <laughs> yeah, like, uh, Hanks, Hanks kind of, like what you're saying with that other ending, Hanks kind of makes the point about the suburbs here, you know what I mean? Yeah. And kind of does it in a good way. The attack on Dukeman's great here, where he bites the uh, splintered finger up. <laughs> I think this is one of the few movies of, you know, where Bruce Dern didn't have some thick-ass beard. (laughs) That's great how he rides the gurney into the back. And he's just laying on his stomach looking at the wall. He doesn't even want to turn around and talk to Carrie Fisher. He just wants to be gone. Mm. 
I mean, I do feel like he should probably be arrested at this point, but oh well, I'll let that slide. Yeah. Yeah, I was kind of thinking about the logistics of that once the uh, Clopex were found out to be the murderers that they were, like all those, uh, you know, those charges or whatever just would go away. Yeah, maybe they could make a uh, Burbs too. It's just about all the legal fallout. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about that. I mean, Nikki Cat eating out of an old school Doritos bag there. I know. Little brother Theodore getting into it with the young punks. Yeah, you gotta have Courtney Gaines driving the uh, ambulance. Yeah, I, I think Hanks definitely would have been in handcuffs like right away. Yeah. I love the offers to fix their house with like his new set of tools. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Henry Gibson, he just, I mean, obviously people, you know, Henry Gibson is, you know, he's just like, he's a man of small stature, but he's so menacing here. Mm-hmm. Got the Dutch angle going. It's, you know, Dante knows what he's doing. He knows how to make it creepy, even in a comedy. He does. Every Everything, um, everything kind of works here. Like, he goes full force into the, you know, the dramatic parts of the script, just like he does the comedy. I feel like that's what a lot of comedies are missing now. Like, they're not they're not full movies. They're just going for, you know, trying to string cheap joke after cheap joke together. Yeah. And that that's why, you know... I mean, I'm sure some movies that come out now will be remembered 20 years from now, but... I think that's the real difference, you know, between... Well, yeah, like I said, I mean, the the performance Gibson is giving here is not a a villain in a comedy. He's giving, Mm. like, a real horror movie villain performance now. And, like, you feel bad about Hanks because he's kind of, you know, Hanks is kind of painted into the boy who cried uh, wolf corner here. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, nobody's going to come save him, you know, because nobody believes there's even a threat going on. And just that way that Henry Gibson's hand was trembling right there as he was getting more and more angry serious actors in a goofy movie will always be better than goofy actors in a goofy movie I agree 100% man just so I don't know just watching this watching this uh, this movie man man, really 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 wish Tom Hanks 1.0 would come back one more time (laughs) like I even tried to like watch his movies like the one he had where he went back to college he like he worked at Kmart and he went back to college and was romancing Julia Roberts I mean that was uh, Larry Crown or whatever like that was supposed to be a more lighthearted movie but it, it wasn't comedic like this yeah I feel like the last gasp of like comedy Tom Hanks was the lady killers yeah Oh yeah, when I was reading a list, I don't know how much of it, if all of it, or just maybe portions of it, but uh, I found it interesting that parts of uh, the Lady Killers remake was shot on this street too. Oh, homecoming for him. Yeah. Tell wonder if he called up. Wonder if he called Dukeman and was like, "Hey, buddy, guess where I am?" Guess <laughs> where? He's like, "I got some weird hair going on here, thanks to the Cohen brothers, but I'm back." <laughs> that was great. That little stunt of. Uh, Tom Hanks and Henry Gibson flying out with the, uh, yeah, you know the stretcher. Like I said, I just love how long this wrap up is. It seems so full. 
Corey Feldman and Beals. <laughs> look at that look on Henry Gibson's face. <laughs> <laughs> and that first that first skull they showed is so disturbing that all the, the front teeth were gone. Look how sheepish, sheepish she suddenly looks. Like, yeah. yeah, you know, yeah, sure, my trunk is full of what looks to be like 20 dead people. But... That's great, too, when uh, Dern sees uh, Courtney Gaines try to sneak away and calls him Pinocchio. <laughs> and then it's it's real minor, but, like, I just thought he slipped on the grass, but then, like, I saw it. Like, there was actually a pile of dog shit that Gaines stepped, slipped on there. Mm. Like I said, just this movie's always calling back to things, you know, calling back to the dog that was always shitting on the lawns. But yeah, there. I think there's a line, uh, you know, earlier with the one uh, uh, cop explaining to Hanks that, you know, why should we take your word and all this, um, <clears throat> you know, Henry Gibson is, you know, I think they said he's like a pathologist or forensic guy or something. Yeah, I, and he works at a local university. Yeah, I thought I thought he was going to try to slip out of the skeletons in the trunk with that, like, oh, this is just work resource or whatever. But nah, he was. Busted. Well, like, so even now, I'd like where I wondered. Does the fact that they end up, you know, Hanks and Dukeman, all of them end up being right, is that really the right way for the movie to go? And would it have been better if they were wrong? But, I mean, I guess, like I said, it works either way. So, yeah. I'm not going to complain too much. I did think it was funny, the last bit of Dukeman comedy here, is that after all this shit has happened, he he wants to, he asks them, you know, do you want to go down to the Bolarama and have a beer? <laughs> <laughs> Geraldo Rivera already on his way. Yeah, to excavate the basement and all that. That is awesome. Courtney Gaines. <laughs> My wife is on Courtney Gaines just straight smashing at Dukeman's house there. Even though they're right, you kind of feel like Dukeman deserved that, you know? Yeah, for all his bullshit. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the movie's definitely interesting uh, in that regard. Like, it kind of makes you wonder, like, okay, they were right that these people were killers, but, you know, the way they went about it, was that the right way? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, so would they still get in trouble for it? Yeah. And how do you feel about this whole, like, breaking the fourth wall to end the movie thing here? Yeah, I, f- I found that weird. I found that was... Really, something. I mean, obviously, movies now still break the fourth wall, but especially at the very end, like the end of the movie, mm-hmm. I feel like that was kind of like. I don't know. Like, I don't feel like movies now play to the crowd as much as they used to. I feel like that was to get one last little, you know, cheap laugh at audience or whatever. Yeah. Oh wow, we don't get credits like this anymore. I miss these. I know. The uh, the classic montage credits of yeah. showing everybody a, cl- a clip from the movie. That was awesome that they, they had to show Hanks putting that sardine in his mouth. Yeah, and, like, these credits kind of came in vogue in, like, kind of epic war movies of the 40s and shit. And it's mm-hmm. kind of cool when somebody does it now for a movie that's, you know, it's unexpected. Yeah, Brother Theodore. I uh, should have given the dog one. Yeah, really? <laughs> yeah, Dante was really uh, heavy on the dog action in this one. There's actually two dogs. So there's that small dog and then Hanks' dog, which had a couple moments as well. 
So yeah, I mean, the credits are just wrapping up here. That's pretty much it for the Burbs. Um, I don't know. It's, it's you know, I, I don't know how many movies down the line we'll get to. I don't think this movie's so unique. I don't think we'll ever get to cover a movie exactly like this. But it was cool. Yeah, I mean, I've, this is a movie I revisit every couple of years at least. Um, you know, like I said, I've seen it so many times as a kid that I've pretty much got it memorized now. But, you know, everyone has those few, like those movies that just put them kind of in their happy place, you know. And The Burbs is certainly one of mine. If yeah. I, had to, I, I hate, like, trying to think what my 10 or 15 favorite movies are, you know. But I, right. if I could really do that, I, I'm, I guarantee you The Burbs would be in, like, the 20, you know, in my top 20 movies of all time. Yeah, it's uh, and I have to say, um, it's uh, you know for a while there, it seemed like a movie that was not really talked about that much. But um, and yeah, just recently, you know, you know, like like basically, you know, especially movies that came out thirty years ago, whatever. Like usually the way, the you know the ones with cult status, the way they go is they're usually bombs when they come out, and then because it got played on HBO or videotape or whatever you know, they slowly gained or whatever. But this one's kind of interesting where it kind of was a hit when it came out. People liked it. People enjoyed it. But they kind of just let it fade away from their memory. And then, like, yeah, like you like you were saying earlier, like, it was kind of freshened up uh, people's memories on cable and stuff like that. But uh, I feel like it's really almost like the last five years I've been seeing people, and even, you know, people younger than us, a little bit younger than us, who I would think would have really no clue what this movie is, starting to appreciate it more. And that's cool. Like, I mean... yeah. I think it just stands well, I mean, to... Is, is this a movie that, you know, we talk about, like, the bad of streaming and things like that, but right. is this a movie that benefits from something like Netflix to where... Being I'm sure a lot of, yeah. I'm sure a lot of young people... And it helps that Tom Hanks is still a huge star, right? So right. young people look it up and go, like, oh, what's this weird movie that Tom Hanks I've never heard of? And then watch it and actually see a good movie that, like I said, doesn't feel dated, still holds up, the humor still works, you know. Yeah. So I, I, I feel I, like people will keep discovering this. I mean, I, I think definitely, too, that, you know, the majority of Dante's movies, especially all his 80s stuff, like we are talking before, definitely, I mean, it's it's staying in the test of time. And, you know, I really hope it stands, like, the real test of time. You know, I hope, you know, 50 years from now, people are, uh, you know, still talking about the burbs and gremlins and stuff. You know, I always wonder about that. Are, are these films really going to be remembered, like, 40 50 60 years or is it just kind of the 20 or you know it's hard to tell with the nostalgia thing and people appreciating older stuff are we just kind of in that 20 to 25 year nostalgia tale or are people really just you know on board because of the overall quality and i, I mean certain movies obviously will live on you know there's still certainly movies from the 40s and 50s and that still find an audience today right I, 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 obviously you see that pool grow smaller and smaller each decade true like, you know, there, I'm sure in the 60s there was a lot more 40 movies from the 40s that were revered than there are today. And each, you know, it just keeps getting smaller and smaller. It, um, yeah. And that's, and that's also just a byproduct of having more movies that come afterwards that vie for people's attention. You know? Exactly. I can't, I can't keep up and watch all the Humphrey Bogart movies anymore because I have current movies to watch too, you know, so. And, the, and then also you kind of have that that stuff that was kind of like, you know, obviously Humphrey Bogart's way before your time, but then as you get older, you kind of want to just, you know, that's kind of where I'm at right now. It's like, it's like I saw a lot of movies when I was younger, but like I'm really getting into the stuff that even if I would have seen it, I would have been too young to remember right now. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you also kind of get into those, those movies that are kind of right before your time. Yeah. You know, 
So when you watch them, they kind of remind you of your childhood, even though it's kind of a quote-unquote fresh movie, because you, you know... You haven't seen it to death. I'm just thinking, like thirty or forty years from now, when people are like us who are like really into cinema, but I mean, they won't have I mean, so many things will have come out since from now till then that you'll have to be super selective about what what the history of cinema and what the past is that you choose to watch. You know, right? Like even in film school, you'll probably just have to be like, well, let's just choose one film from the '40s and one film from the '50s because we you just can't focus on all of it that much anymore. Yeah, it's weird, and it's like, uh, I guess the stuff that really is, like, the cream of the crop will last, but some of those kind of minor classics kind of fade away or whatever. But um, what I'm noticing now, what's kind of interesting is the trend is, like, some of the stuff is maybe not necessarily it was the highest whatever classic, but it's, like, kind of like we were saying, you know, that that's the good side of streaming is some of the stuff that was kind of like a minor whatever still gets remembered just because it's more readily available, you know, yeah. easy for people to access. So, yeah, so I, I, I enjoy covering this movie. I hope people out there do too. I, I hope, you know, you know, uh, kind of with what we're trying to do here with the 1980s movie graveyard, be at the Facebook page, check out the Facebook page and also extension with the podcast is, we're trying. We're trying to snare you guys off the internet that are searching for this movie or that movie or some keywords or whatever. And we want to bring you into this fold to help appreciate this stuff. Like, let's not let this stuff die. And you know, I mean, obviously, you know, there's other decades we could easily have done a '70s show or '90s show or whatever. But uh, you know, '80s is kind of a ripe thing because there's there's a lot of nostalgia right now, but there's also a lot of movies that are being forgotten just because time is ticking away. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So if you came to this as a Burbs fan, we hope you liked our conversation of it. Stick around on the Facebook page. Keep getting our podcast because we got plenty more '80s shit going on. And if you don't just want to stick your head in the sand like me and live in the 1980s only, you can hear about some fresh shit on my other podcast, Hibbly DVD Reviews. Of course, if it bleeds, we can kill it. And yep. if you're if you're a big X Men fanatic, you got you, you got to start chatting some Tatum there and get on that Days of Future podcast. Yep. There's, in other words, there's plenty of opportunities to hear our bullshit. <laughs> yeah, we trust us. <laughs> our bullshit spewers never stop twenty four seven. If nothing else, we love hearing ourselves talk. So. Exactly. But we want to hear you guys talk too. So send us some emails, slowhandradio at gmail.com, or best place to do, if you're a 1980s fan, go to the 1980s Movie Graveyard page on Facebook. So till next time, we'll see you guys in the basement. Bring your VHS tapes over. We'll watch what you want to watch and talk about them. So later, movie lovers.